Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. It is genuinely tragic that religion, intended to set our minds on heavenly things, is repeatedly debased by the preoccupation of religious people with worldly things. The biblical story calls us to look past human transience to the things that are eternal, the things Jesus teaches that pertain to God. Meanwhile, the fundamentalists in Matthew are debating property rights. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 29 to 33. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 358 of the Bible as Literature podcast. A colleague recently asked me to define fundamentalism. I began by explaining that the root of fundamentalism is self-righteousness, but the point I was trying to make ultimately in the context of the Gospel of Matthew is that fundamentalism, the observance of religious rules in order to become pure, is materialism disguised as spirituality, disguised as something from the heavens. And whether we're talking about the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew or the Sadducees, again and again we are confronted with a system of religious actions, traditions, institutions, and teachings that lend themselves to materialism disguised as a concern with heavenly things. And that's why, as you pointed out last week, Richard, this question about marriage and inheritance boils down to possession, but in a very specific way in Matthew chapter 22, possession of the land, which is materialism. When you concern yourself with the Jerusalem below, under the guise of the language of Scripture, you have a kind of materialism that poses as something godly, and that's exactly the mistake the Sadducees make when they're dealing with the question of inheritance and their duty towards their brother's widow. This focus on materialism is twin to the concern about individualism. I was having a conversation also this week, Father, where someone was talking about how God wants us to flourish. It rubbed me the wrong way, and I think it's because there's two ways of understanding that statement. Us can either be a collective or a bunch of individuals. When I hear God wants us to flourish, I think of his people, his congregation. When other people hear it, oftentimes they think it means he wants each one of us to flourish. If we focus on the 
parables and the metaphors that we find in Scripture, it's not about individuals. When God talks about his people flourishing, he doesn't use the word individuals. He's not saying anashim or something like this. He says am, which means the collective of the people, the nation. When we look at the farming metaphor, the farmer is not going and making sure that each one of the stalks of wheat is doing well. He just cares that at the end, he's going to have enough harvest. Now, a few of those are going to die in the meantime. When the shepherd talks about the flock, he's not taking care of each member of the flock. He cares about the flock, not each sheep, not each head of sheep, as we say in English. When we talk about the orchard or the vineyard, it's not about this grape or that grape. It's about the harvest of grapes at the end. And when Paul talks about the body, I think this is one of the best metaphors. It's not about whether this finger does well or that knee does well. It's whether the body does well. We have to be very careful when we interpret this about me. It's always about us, as in the entire collective. Once we start thinking that there is something in here about our individual fates, then it's a problem. Now, one time where we do see that there's something about individual fates is when it comes to judgment. How did we do as a member of that field, of that flock, of that people, of that body, of that congregation? How well did we perform our role as the wheat, as the sheep, as the tree, as the arm? I'm here for the entirety, for the collective to flourish. That's where your discussion about wealth and materialism is a problem because ultimately we think, I want to be rich. No, 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 no. It's not about I want to be rich. I want to have a prosperous society and whatever I have to sacrifice and whatever I have to not receive and not get so that the entirety, so the body, so the collective, so the congregation thrives and is wealthy and prosperous. I give that up for the sake of the prosperity of the entire whole. It's important to stress on top of what you said with respect to materialism that you can't convert this into your social justice. Not your social justice, Richard, but, you know, the proverbial social justice, because you can then make it your rational materialism where I'm doing this so that we can have justice in the United States. Well, then it becomes your judgment and your righteousness, and we're back at square one. Because in Scripture, when Havakuk died, he did not see the fruit of his labors. He did not see how his proclamation of the teaching benefited the whole. So it's what you're saying, Richard, with that important but difficult reminder always that leans against our realized eschatology. What the Sadducees don't understand, and the Pharisees reject in their desire to control Palestine, is that they are to teach this teaching, submit to this teaching, and die, with no guarantee of what the benefit will be to the whole. They have to trust that the Lord of the harvest will reap where he has sown. And on top of that, they definitely can't be trying to figure out what's in it for them. This is where your point about individualism is critical. You're individually accountable, but you are not interested in what you get out of it as an individual. And in the span of your very brief lifetime, you may not see what God will get out of it, which is what really counts. 
I want to hearken back to our study of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus doesn't discuss how to be effective. He doesn't try to figure out what the best approach is. He doesn't talk about what he's doing. He just runs around teaching, and then they kill him. This is the mindset of Scripture. And if you are interested in this life and not the treasure in the heavens, it's not going to be an exciting discipline for you. (laughs) It's not an exciting discipline for anybody, but you're not going to be interested in doing this. You're going to reject it. Because by insisting on the treasure in the heavens where moth doesn't come in and rust doesn't, you know, eat at it, you're completely dismembering the worldview of the Sadducee who is interested in making sure that whatever we land on with this Torah business, you don't mess with my treasure that I have right now. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And here I need to just jump right away, Richard, and talk about how the translators have already bastardized the text because of their bias towards intellectualism and theology, as though Jesus is having a cerebral debate about the finer points of whatever with the Sadducees. He's not correcting an error in their thought. Because the word that is translated here as mistaken, planao, means to wander and to be led astray. And the word that they translate as understanding, eva, means to have not seen and therefore you don't know what it says. So they are led astray because they are not meditating on the precepts of the Lord's teaching in the night watches. It's not that they don't get it cognitively. They're not looking at it, and that's why they can be led astray. And when I think about your point about how they ignore the prophets, that's a weightier judgment against the Sadducees, Rich. Yeah, that is funny, because really this is what Jesus does time and time again, is he says, you don't know scripture. And actually, I see this. (laughs) Jesus isn't the only one to run into this trouble, because it's so common when people are like, well, what about this? And they'll ask a question, and it's not from scripture. And so I'll either say, I don't know what you're talking about, or I'll say, let's find a scripture that we can start with so that we can understand what we need to be doing, because we do need to start with this. Now, supposedly the Sadducees did start with this. You know, if a person dies and has no children, then his brother will marry his wife, etc., right? So they started with that scripture, but then they went off in this whole thing about who is she married to in the resurrection. It's an odd direction that they took this because they're not following it. I mean, if you understand what Moses is saying in context, if your brother dies, you owe him something. That's what he's saying. He's saying you owe something to your brother so that his line can continue. It's not about what you get if your brother dies. If your brother dies, then you get his wife. I mean, what is this? If your brother dies, then you owe something to your brother and you give something to your brother by means of your brother's wife. It's charis, it's chesed towards your brother. This is what it's about. If you're reading this from Moses and you forgot that chesed is like a big deal in scripture or charis is something that's important or loving kindness or showing mercy, if you forgot that, maybe you never did see the scripture. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I love verse 30, the power of verse 30 is 
that Jesus is explaining what it means to be someone who is numbered among the epnevmatiki. To be an angel in heaven is to be someone who is preaching the message, someone who is beyond the reach of materialism. Remember, the angel is the one who carries the gospel. That's why Paul talks in Galatians about an angel contradicting him because he's referring to the other apostles contradicting the gospel. It's about his conflict with Peter and James. So in the heavens in Matthew, you become like the ones who are assigned to carry the news of the Father's teaching. It's about the teaching. So if you want to anthropomorphize the kingdom— it's like the old legend about elders sitting in the synagogue reading Torah together. That's heaven forever. You're an angel studying Torah and preaching it. It has nothing to do with who married who, who gets what inheritance, who owns what land. All of that is what I mean by materialism, Rich. And the beauty of Scripture is it's opening the opportunity to us now in this life to be like the angels and to concern ourselves with the business of the heavens and the preaching of God's teaching. That's the power. Any one of us can function like an angel now by carrying the news of God's law to the nations. That's the business that is the spiritual business. And as we insisted last week, I'm thankful for you making this point. The inheritance belongs to God. The seed belongs to God. And as Father Paul said recently on his Tuesday program, the spirit belongs to God. And that's why in Paul's letter, he controls the spirit. The very thing they don't know because they're not looking at it, they haven't seen it, and that's why they're being led astray. Angels are the opposite of material beings. In the whole kind of mythology of this time, I mean, angels don't have children. They don't produce their own seed. The only thing that they provide, the only thing they produce, is reproducing the word, the message that their master gives them. They don't own land. They don't live on land. They're immaterial. They're not of this earth that they neither marry nor are given in marriage means that this whole thing of producing seed for yourself, producing seed for your brother is not the question here. So Jesus undermines immediately the Sadducees' whole presupposition. He's saying the resurrection and marriage, they're not things we talk about together. Marriage is about producing seed on earth. It's about producing the next generation. <laughs> Once there's the resurrection, there's no next generation. We're done with that age. We're done with that era. We're not producing material seed anymore. At that point, it's only about obedience and allegiance. And the angels are the ones who are obedient and have allegiance to God. This concern about producing and possessing when we're talking about the resurrection, it's nonsense. It doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't apply. Jesus immediately says that this whole business of the marriage and the resurrection don't apply to one another. He's judging them for not doing the business of the angels, which is to proclaim the teaching. They're not even looking at it. They are not interested in heavenly things. They are interested in worldly things and earthly things. We must always, always set our minds on 
heavenly things in Scripture. And that's the tragedy of fundamentalism. It makes up a system of rules and calls them spirituality. And the rules pertain to worldly things. This is the whole battle of Scripture. Because you're creating a system of rules to make something of yourself in material terms, which is what the tradition of the Sadducees and, ironically, the Pharisees is. That's their tradition. It's worldliness. And Scripture is calling them to set their mind on things that don't pertain to selfish materialism, things that pertain to the wisdom of God. If that is truly your concern, you would be totally preoccupied with studying Torah, and you would be like angels in heaven before your crucifixion. That's the power of baptism. Before you are crucified, you can function as someone who pertains to the kingdom of the heavens by acting as a citizen of a kingdom that has not yet come and preaching the news of God's instruction. It's so beautiful, Rich. I wanted to just ruminate a bit more on the metaphor of the angels, because we are called to be angels in the way that we conduct ourselves. And it's not about purity. It's about duty and where we set our minds and what our purpose is. And with respect to the Beatitudes again, whether or not we have purity of heart, namely singular purpose in how we conduct our business, which is to preach and to do what is asked of us in God's instruction. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. It's very clever how Jesus frames verse 32 by reminding them once again that they haven't read Genesis. <laughs> That's what's really great about the Pentateuch. You have Exodus quoting Genesis and bringing the whole story of the patriarchs and making it functional when you're talking about identifying which God is speaking to Moses. He said, you haven't read it, so I have no time for you. But let me remind you of the section heads of the book. There are these very important characters, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of those patriarchs in the story that you haven't read. And while you may die, I do not die. So if you're interested in heavenly things, you need to know my story because it is my inheritance, my seed, my land, and it is the life that I possess in Genesis, and that I give and I take away. My teaching does not die, and my teaching is the source of life. So don't tell me you don't believe in life when my patriarchs live because of my law and my word. Again, have you not read? You don't know the scriptures. Haven't you read? Like, Jesus just goes after this, and I tell you— it is just as annoying to talk to modern Christians using this kind of language as it was to the Sadducees. If a Christian comes to you and asks you a question and you say, didn't you read the Bible? 
don't you know the Bible? Because they're always like, of course I do. Of course I know. That's what they always say, right? So he says, look, resurrection and marriage, they're not compatible. I'm just going to talk about resurrection. (laughs) He says, okay, so marriage and resurrection are not compatible. But regarding resurrection, let's talk about resurrection. That's what Jesus wants to talk about. He's a great orator this way. Whatever question you ask him, he's going to answer the one he wants to answer anyway. Didn't you read what God said about resurrection? Again, we go back to this original point. This isn't about individuals and what happens to this guy in the resurrection. What happens to that guy in the resurrection and the other guy in the resurrection? This isn't what Jesus talks about. That's not what Scripture talks about. Resurrection is a corporate idea. That's why in Ezekiel, he raises all the bones together. He doesn't raise some bones together and say, look, here's Mike. He was just resurrected. Oh, and look over here. This is Sarah. She was just resurrected. That's not what he says. He says the people were raised up. That's what resurrection is. It's a corporate arising of the dead. The resurrection shows that for God, there's no distinction between the living and the dead. Everyone has a duty to his word. All that the angels do is preach this word. What do they benefit from it? As far as I know, nothing. I mean, I haven't read anything about what merit is ascribed to the angel who preaches the word. I mean, that's just what he does. In the Orthodox liturgy, we talk about the cherubic hymn, and we say, like the cherubim, let us put aside all earthly cares. And I don't like the word earthly because it's biotikos, it's biological cares. We don't care about the things of this life. We just care about functioning according to our duty, which is what angels do. With the Sadducees, what Jesus does is he says, we're not going to talk about marriage because this is the materialism. This is the day-to-day stuff that you guys get worried about, about your individualism and about who gets what in the end and how do we divvy up the chips once the poker game is over. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the resurrection, which shows that under God, there is no escaping the judgment. The entire people, living and dead, are all under God. When I say that raising up seed to your brother is about chesed, let's talk about loving kindness. Let's talk about how the way that you sacrifice for the sake of your brother, like sacrificing your own children for the sake of your brother, which is what this directive from Moses is saying, is doing for the collective, and how are you fulfilling that requirement. Are you raising up seed for the good of the next generation of your brother, not you, where you get nothing out of it? Are you willing to raise up children, seed, for the sake of the next generation, for the sake of the entire people, so that everyone benefits, or are you thinking about yourself? Let's talk about that now. So Jesus changes this conversation away from marriage to resurrection. In Genesis, with Each of these characters, each of these patriarchs, the next generation is preserved because God intervenes with his seed to sustain the community. That is what is at stake in the proclamation of the resurrection. Who is sustaining the community? It is God through his instruction that gives life. The thing about the patriarchs is that That's the only individual in Scripture that counts, because the patriarch is the shepherd of the flock, so to speak. In the wilderness, the way Scripture deals with the patriarch is that he's emasculated and supplanted 
with God's seed. Remember, none of these guys could have kids until God disrupted the situation and provided the seed to produce life. That's why it's so important in the letter to the Galatians that Jesus is the Son of God through the line of Isaac, which is God's promise to Abraham. It's the promise that is the source of life. So there's also this very interesting application of the generations within the book of Genesis being contrasted with their silly discussion of these seven brothers. The brothers keep dying. There's no hope for the land unless God makes it fertile. That's Genesis, Richard. If God didn't intervene, there would have been no Isaac or Jacob. So what are we talking about? When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus brings up this verse specifically because this is how Yahweh introduces himself to Moses and to the people, more importantly. This is who God is. So if you want to know who God is, then you start with this. This is the premise before you start talking about marriage and resurrection. You know, who are we talking about here? Who is this God? Who is this Yahweh? We need to understand this. And he is the one that made the seed move from one generation to the next, all the way through Galatians, so that Jesus is the ultimate culmination of this fruit. So it's about the seed. Because in the scenario that the Sadducees bring up, the seed is dead. There's no fruit. There's no next generation. The field, so to speak, the wife, never produced a child. Since it's dead, human beings are inert. They can't produce anything. So then it's up to God to produce. The Sadducees then are asking the question, well, if in the resurrection they get married and they have a child, who's the child belong to? Thinking that there's still some need for human beings to create the next generation after the resurrection. A, the living and the dead are the same under God. It doesn't matter. And B, it's God who produces the fruit anyway. Always. Even in our current time. Your duty is to perform what Scripture says and to be kind and to be charitable to the next generation and to your brother, not making sure you've got enough stuff. Because it's only God that gives you the stuff. You don't produce that stuff. When God is the God of the dead and the living, all are equal under him, and he is the one that produces life at all times. When the multitude hears this, of course they're astonished. They're astonished at this doctrine because they've been bamboozled by these questions of these Sadducean types. They're as astonished by this introduction of who Yahweh is as Moses was to hear it in Exodus chapter 3. Now, you and I know, Father, and our audience knows who's been hearing us for however many months or years, when the multitude is amazed, when they marvel, that sort of thing, don't trust them. Because it means that it sounds amazing, but they don't get it. They don't get that God alone produces the fruit, and this is going to be the key to understanding the crucifixion. If you don't understand that God is always the one to produce life, even in those places where it seems that the ground is barren and destroyed and nothing can come of that land, from that death... God can always produce life. It's sad that the crowds are astonished because if you look back to Matthew chapter 7 
they were astonished or amazed because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And I say that it's sad because while the Pharisees and the Sadducees are motivated by religious rules and structures and controls and imposing those controls on others, they don't do so from a position of divine authority. They don't preach as the angels. They speak as men. Jesus refers to God. Notice that in verse 32, he says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When he is quoting his father's imposition of Genesis on Sinai, Jesus is not speaking on his own authority. That's the important point I'm making. But he speaks with the authority of the he to whom he refers. And the critique of the Sadducees and the Pharisees is because they're so small-minded, they don't speak with that authority. It's not to say Jesus is special. It's to say that they're lame. And people have to hear that point. Because if you want to be as the angels in the heavens, you have to speak the way Jesus is speaking in Matthew. And people don't have the guts to do that. Abraham is dead, but Isaac is because God produced seed. God produced a son for Abraham. Not from Abraham's flesh, not from his seed. God provided the seed. God makes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob function for you because while they are dead, the seed is alive in the next generation. The fact that there are sons of Abraham means that Abraham is functional. So Abraham is alive not in a woo-woo way like in our hearts. Abraham is alive because God created a seed from Abraham so that the next generation could live. The teaching about Abraham is alive, which creates the next generation of the congregation, of the people, of the body, of the field, of the flock. And this is God making these people who are dead functional. And as such, how dare they be preoccupied with their possession of the land when so much is at stake? Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.